If you're enjoying these episodes of Yankton's Yardbirds, join us on our support site called buymeacoffee.com. Please consider clicking the support the show link included in the description of each show. You can choose to donate $5, 10 15 or $20, or you can become a member. Members will receive extra content that will be added as the shows progress. This will include pictures of the vets, audio interviews, maps, write-ups, and much more content that will be available to members only. Please consider making a donation or becoming a member soon. And as always, thank you for listening to Yankton's Yardbirds. Today's episode is brought to you by Credit Collection Services. For your collection needs, choose Credit Collection Services. Serving the Yankton area for over 75 years. Don't settle for anything but the best. Welcome to Yankton's Yardbirds podcast presenting the World War II stories of Yankton's veterans. After 165 interviews and countless hours of preparation, it's time to share these stories. As of now, they'll be shared by podcast and later will be presented in print. If you have questions, free to contact me at davidhosmer at hotmail.com. Please be advised that there is some offensive language within these interviews. When I'm speaking, I've added my language to more modern times. There is still mystery surrounding the death of Captain George Gillenhammer, who died on the 2nd of July, 1942. Ed Johnson from Mission Hill knew George, who was born on the 28th of February in 1892. According to Ed, George died as he was trying to stop rum runners out of Mexico. Dr. Frithjof Gillenhammer emigrated from Sweden to America in 1887. According to Doan Robinson, Anna Carlson, who was Frithjof's sister, was widowed and became his housekeeper. They adopted George and his two sisters. After high school, he enrolled at Northwestern University in Chicago. His happy year of graduation in 1914 was interrupted by Dr. Gillenhammer's death in September. When the Great War arrived, he participated, although nothing is known of his service. After the war, he worked in a pharmacy and later married Edna Erickson from Gayville. She had two brothers, Ken and Earl, Ken is Gail Erickson's father. Anna passed away in 1924, and Edna tragically passed away in 1934 at the age of 40, and they had no children. And perhaps this sadness led him to work as a narcotics officer for the Treasury Department. Ed Johnson laughed as he recalled George talking about living in Los Angeles and driving fast boats in the ocean to track drug dealers. When World War II began, he re-enlisted in the Army and was commissioned as a captain. He was assigned to the 749th Military Police Battalion, which was stationed at the Tanferan Assembly Center. About 8,000 Japanese Americans were detained at the racetrack there before being sent to a concentration camp at Abraham, Utah. George's nephew, Gail Erickson, when he was a youngster, met George. George returned to Gayville about once a year, and according to Gail, he, he gave great presents. One year, Gail and his brother each received an Ingersoll watch. Gail always believed that George died as a result of a coughing spell while at a restaurant. The whole family wondered how that could have happened. George is buried at the Golden Gate National Cemetery in San Bruno, California. 
A number of men and women from the Yankton area were active in the war in non-combative roles, such as making parts for or installing parts in boats and airplanes, and some also worked on radar or other electronics. Congress authorized considerable military spending prior to World War II, and much of that money funded jobs located in the West Coast. Word spread across the United States that more workers were needed. Art Giggy from Yankton responded to the call. He and his brother Herman drove Art's Model T to Washington State. Their first jobs were picking apples in an orchard, but both later worked at the Oregon-Washington Plywood Company, which made parts for PT boats, airplanes, military buildings, shipping crates, and many other things. John Brady worked at Dryer's Creamery in Yankton, but he and a few friends wanted to make the trip to find greener pastures. They jumped aboard a train in western Nebraska and wound up in Rawlings, Wyoming, where they were arrested for trespassing. As John told it, he had $25 in his pocket and the courts and railroad took every last nickel. They arrived in San Diego, California with nothing. John eventually was hired by Consolidated Aircraft where he installed plexiglass on seaplanes. Dale Orr graduated from high school in 1941. As a result of receiving a partial scholarship, he, he attended the Lincoln Aeronautical Institute where he learned airport construction, which didn't suit him. He heard about the jobs in the airplane business in California, so with a mere $30 in his pocket, Dale quit school, hitched hiked to Burbank, California, and applied for a job at Lockheed, which was manufacturing the British version of the P-38. There was plenty of work, and he was hired to drill rivets on the planes. He was paid 48 cents per hour, but the local union got him a raise to 58 cents. Bill Lynch was about to enter his senior year in high school when he traveled to California to see two of his brothers. After he arrived, he found out that his brothers were not employed, so all three of them applied at a candy-making company. The company wanted Bill's brother, who was larger, but he refused, so Bill took the job hauling 100-pound bags of sugar. It wasn't as glamorous as riveting on a P-38, but he earned enough money to take a train home, and he was ready for his senior year of sports. Another man of adventure was Jim Black, a high school graduate from Fullerton, Nebraska. He and friends devised a plan to travel to California and work in the military industry. Black was hired by Northrop, an aircraft plant. His job was to rivet and later to cut patterns out of aluminum sheeting. He was paid 65 cents per hour at Northrop, which was not unionized. It ran three shifts every day during the year, and he worked 48 hours a week. These young men and many, many more left their jobs to be in the military. Workers were needed to fill the jobs the men vacated, so many young women were hired. Dolores D. Swanson Hatch graduated from Wakanda High School in 1943. Her intent was to enroll at the University of South Dakota that fall, so she worked that summer to save money to pay for college. However, her plans were interrupted when her cousin, visiting from California, asked Dee to return with her to get a defense job. Quote, I wanted to go. Oh, my mother cried buckets of tears, she said. Dee described herself as a good student and said that some teachers didn't want her to go. It was her dad who intervened, saying, let her go. She'll get sick of it and come home. Dee said, well, I never came home. She worked at an aircraft plant that made B-25s and P-38s. After Bill Dayhoff was drafted in the Army in June of 1944, he moved to Little Rock, Arkansas, for basic training. His high school sweetheart, Lucille Gore, followed him there, and she worked in a defense plant making bombs. Quote, I have little memory of Little Rock. It was segregated, and I didn't think much about it, unquote. A possible Japanese invasion was taken very seriously, so the coast was heavily defended. Ken Custis had first-hand knowledge of the American response along the west coast. 
He enlisted in the Army in 1941 after his first semester of college was completed. The sneak attack at Pearl Harbor roused his emotions. After completing officer candidate school, his first call of duty as a second lieutenant was to assist the Nevada National Guard in the defense of the West Coast. His primary duty was to spot Japanese planes. After the Battle of Midway in June of 1942, the ability of the Japanese to conduct an airstrike on the West Coast was limited. As a result, the Japanese sent high-elevation balloon bombs, which were rubberized bags filled with hydrogen that carried one or several bombs. They were carried to the States in the jet stream. Ken's Coastal Defense Unit set up 50-caliber machine guns in the Los Angeles and Hollywood areas. Incidentally, while he was in Hollywood, he saw Bob Hope, Bing Crosby, and Dorothy L'Amour as they filmed Road to Utopia. Although he didn't shoot any balloons while he was stationed there, several were downed several years later. The noise and shrapnel of those balloon bombs shattered windows all over Los Angeles. The next stage of Ken's coastal defense duties was top secret at the time. He was sent to the University of California at Davis to visit a facility run by Major Hoke. The secret was the first portable radar unit, which was protected by military guards that patrolled around a very high fence. Its secrets were so closely held that a trip to the bathroom required a signature. Ken joked with a young lady at the sign-out desk and eventually dated her. Her folks owned a large apricot and olive farm in California. Ken was one of the men responsible for installing the portable radar units used in the patrol of the West Coast by the 4th Air Force. He watched a portable radar unit be installed adjacent to the Hollywood Land sign, which was later shortened to Hollywood. He inspected the radar units up and down the coast after they were installed. One inspection brought back some pretty scary memories. He was in San Francisco to inspect a radar unit at the Presidio, a military post, and was ordered to travel south for more inspections. A plane took off from Oakland to pick him up and to take him to Los Angeles. But due to the foggy morning, it crashed before he could climb aboard. Everybody was killed. Whether shipping out to the Pacific Theater or coming home from deployment, sailors and soldiers fondly recalled one particular American symbol, the Golden Gate Bridge. Bob Steinbach mused, it was the worst feeling leaving my family going under the Golden Gate Bridge. Looking up, I wondered if I would ever see it again. Cliff Hicks said the trip home was miserable until they landed in San Francisco. Boy, what a celebration that was to pass under the Golden Gate Bridge. Bill Dayhoff had a similar thought. About 12,000 of us were aboard a great big ship, and we came into San Francisco and passed under the Golden Gate Bridge. That was a beautiful sight, he said. Bob Bailey said it took a long time to get home. These ships don't travel very fast. I was so happy to see the Golden Gate Bridge. Delmer Strunk suggested something else. He returned from the jungles of Burma. While aboard ship, the men were told to grab some canteen cups. They mixed up some Coca-Cola and every man got a cup. Never drank a Coke that tasted that good. That was America. If you are interested in sponsoring an episode of Yankton's Yardbirds, please contact David Hosmer at davidhosmer at hotmail.com. All content for this podcast was created by David Hosmer, and all production was performed by Eric Berenger. Thank you for listening to this episode of Yankton's Yardbirds. <laughs>